Well, as Ben said, we are uh, continuing this uh, series in the doctrine of the church uh, called The Dearest Place. And again, I've apologized for this almost every week and then gone ahead and preached it anyway, but it is our practice to work through texts of the Bible sequentially, verse by verse, passage by passage, book by book. That's our joy and delight. Uh, but sometimes it's good to pause to look at things from a kind of doctrinal perspective, still taking the text within their context, but looking to see... Uh, what they have to say to us and what we learn about these different doctrines that we as a church family happily hold to. So if you have your Bible, uh, why don't you turn back to that 1 Corinthians 11 passage. We're going to refer to various passages and sections within that passage, though not walking through it verse by verse as we would like to do normally. We have done that before. I think it was back in about 2014-15, so if you go online you can find that uh, sermon if you like. And uh, let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand what you would teach us today. And we thank you that you have given him to us in kindness, in the name of your Son, and in abundance. Uh, he leads even those of us who don't know you yet to conviction and to understanding. And for those who do, he leads us into truth, to grasp it to apprehend it, to love it, and to live it. Please be at work in all of those ways amongst every one of us gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, years ago, uh, before kids, when we were in our 20s, uh, uh, Catherine, my wife, and her mom and dad would sometimes go away on holiday and uh, leave us to look after their house. Every time without fail, there would be a note on the dining room table in the exact same place every time, actually, uh, with some very specific instructions for us. Put the bin out on Thursday. Uh, pay the window cleaner. See beneath the note, lift it up, £10 there. Uh, on the back of the sheet, this is not for kebabs, uh, is generally what they would say. Uh, thirdly, clean the house, okay? Four, feed the dog. We were prone to forget. Now, that list left us in no doubt what was important to them. Uh, they didn't want an overflowing bin or an, a dirty windows or an unhappy window cleaner. Uh, they definitely didn't want to come home to a dirty house or a dead dog. But, so our job was very, very simple. Follow their instructions until they return. Now, Christ has done something very similar for us, his church, and left us with some very careful and clear instructions, things that we must do while he's away. We call them ordinances. Some would call them sacraments. That's all right. I prefer ordinances. And there are two of them. Now, other traditions, of course, like Roman Catholicism, argue for more than two. They argue for seven, uh, but we don't hold to that at all. There are two of them. The first is baptism. And baptism is a one-time initiatory act symbolizing the start of our commitment to Christ and his church. You can picture it as a bath. That's what that picture is meant to look like. Not homicide, but actually a bath, okay? It is, that's what it's meant to look like anyway. It looked better on my laptop than it did up there. But ultimately, and this is, we're kind of doing things the wrong way around. We should have been doing baptism first, but we have some baptisms next week. So we're going to preach on baptism next week. But picture it as a bath. And again, specifically, if you want to know where does Jesus explicitly teach his church to baptize people, it's Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the first ordinance. The second is communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table as you can find it in these passages in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Now, communion is a repeated and a regular act done often, symbolizing the renewal. So if baptism represents the start of our commitment to Christ, communion, in a sense, represents the renewal of our commitment to Christ and to his body, to the church. So you can, if you picture baptism as a bath, picture communion as a family meal, okay? Now, Jesus personally instructs his church to do this, uh, we, and we have records of it in Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Mark 14, 22 to 25, and Luke 22, 19 to 20. They each record Jesus' saying when he takes bread and wine, do this in remembrance of me. We've heard this often, I'm sure. And what is our job? What is the responsibility of every single local church if it is not to obey, to follow his instructions to the letter until he comes back? So we're asking the question today, why take communion? And I want to give us a, 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 an, as comprehensive an answer as we can come up with, really. And the answer to this question, which I'll break down into three for us, is this because it's a symbolic meal of bread and wine ordained by Jesus for his church to remember and proclaim his death until he comes. So let me break it down into those three points. First of all, a symbolic meal of bread and wine ordained by Jesus. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25. And the Apostle Paul here, referring back to the occasion that's described for us in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, tells us that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, here's what I want us to see, that Jesus instituted this meal with objects jam-packed with significance. Now, bread and wine, they could not be more ordinary, could they? More, they could not be more run-of-the-mill. I mean, they are items that, you know, if you're shopping at Tesco, you know, back in Israel, you wouldn't even put them on the list. They're the things that you put in your basket without even thinking about it. What porridge and iron brew are to Scots, bread and wine were to Israelites. Grain and grapes were the staple of Israel's diet. But bread and wine were also thick with associations from Israel's past. So not only were they food and drink, they served as signs of all kinds of things, of, of friendship and hospitality. Psalm 104 says, between God and his people, bread and wine are symbols of that. And then Genesis 14, Ruth chapter 2, they are signs of friendship and hospitality between the members of God's people. But bread and wine were also indicators of both the blessings and the curses of the covenant that you read about in the Old Testament. So when God's people walked with him in faithfulness, what did they eat? Bread. What did they drink? Wine. Okay? When they didn't, what happened? Their fields 
and their vineyards were struck. It was God's disciplinary judgment on them. But bread and wine also served as symbols of the hope in God's Messiah. What, what did the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah say about his coming? What, what would abound in Amos when the king of all kings would appear? Grain, new wine, bread, cup. Okay, and it's, and friends, it is absolutely no accident whatsoever that as you scan through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find Jesus in his ministry multiplying both bread and wine, likening himself to both, promising both in the age to come, dependent on what you made of him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he consecrates both to create a new covenant meal, a meal that is so jam-packed full of significance and promise for the people who would believe in him, trust in his cross, confess his resurrection. So you see bread and wine, simple little things, and yet he, Jesus, is all that this bread and wine symbolizes. But that's not all. Not only are the objects of communion jam-packed with significance, Jesus instituted this new covenant meal on a day that was charged with significance for Israel. It was, of course, Passover. Now, Passover was the occasion in the Old Testament where families gathered to remember God's deliverance of them from Egypt and slavery to Pharaoh. And it was won through, of course, the instruction of the Lord and the, the, um, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So year after year after year, on Passover, the table of the Israelites was set with visible and edible reminders of God's salvation. Every single bit was a symbol. Every single item was like a memory jog for them. And the focal point of that feast was a slain lamb whose blood not, was not only shielded them from the wrath of God, but freed them to live a new life of devotion to God. The lamb died instead of us, they'd say. The lamb died instead of us. But on this particular night, when Jesus takes all these items in front of him, when he takes bread and wine, instead of directing the disciples' gaze to God's salvation in the past, he directs their eyes, their hearts, their focus to God's salvation in the present. Not to another object, but to himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John said. And just as Passover served up reminders that evoked gratitude and joy on a table, on a plate, so Jesus takes bread and wine and he serves his church with the same. This bread he takes, this is my body, which is for you. This cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood, the better covenant written on our hearts, not stone, promising sins covered, not just for a time, but for eternity. Now, what does all this mean for us? Ultimately, it means that we need to start and grow into our understanding of what these two things represent, the bread and the cup. I mean, few things make this a formality of taking a couple little things as ignorance, like not knowing and not understanding. 
Let's read our Bibles. Let's read from and preach the Old Testament, grasping the significance of all that's taught in there and how it fuels our understanding of the new and makes our living out of it in the present, here and now, meaningful to us. Grasping their significance, the significance of bread in this cup, well, increases our joy and gratitude. Having said that, I do want to say that these are just symbols. I hate using the word just based on all that they represent and all I've just said so far. Just is a terrible word to use. But I have to use that because different church traditions try to convince us otherwise, saying that something happens to or through these simple items of bread and wine. But they are signs, I've taken the word just out, they are signs, symbols, serving us the very same way that a road sign uh, does, like the road sign down the street uh, at the bottom of the road towards Haymarket that points to and signposts a place called Glasgow. Now in Roman Catholicism, which I grew up in by the way, I used to serve as a wee altar boy, and when the priest would lift the heavenly host and say, do this in remembrance of me, I'd dingle the wee bell, and, you know, according to the Roman Catholic dogma and catechism, in that moment, that bread and that wine becomes the physical substance of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes, transforms. It's called transubstantiation, if you want the fancy word for it. But we reject that. It's error. That's like saying that the sign down the road for Glasgow is Glasgow. So go and stand by it later. You'll be in Glasgow. No, you won't, because it's a sign. It's not Glasgow. Glasgow is very different. Lutheran churches, on the other hand, believe that these elements of bread and wine aren't physically changed, but Christ is still in, with, and under, as they say to the extent that it's still the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus that you consume. We reject that also because that's them still saying the sign is Glasgow, but it's not. Others, like many of our Presbyterian friends, say, well, there is no actual physical change to the elements of bread and wine, but still Christ is spiritually present in some inexplicable but actual way. Now, that is absolutely much more like it, okay? At least the sign is not Glasgow, but still something of Glasgow is present when you're near the sign, which is another reason why many people in evangelical churches and in Baptist churches like ours maintain a a simpler, straightforward memorial view. This is a remembrance They are symbols, signs that point and reinforce that by reminding us that Christ is definitely present, not in a floaty sense, but in the ways that the Bible promises he will be, in his people, by his spirit. That's what the Bible says. So that that says, referring to the sign again, the sign is a vital reminder that Glasgow is very real. And the sign itself really does point to a place called Glasgow. But it's just not Glasgow. And it's still very meaningful to follow the direction of the sign. Same goes for 
communion. Same goes for these elements of bread and wine. All of that to say in our first point that communion is a symbolic meal ordained for us by Jesus. Who is it for, though? Well, point two, our answer to that is it's for his church, for his church. So communion is a family meal for baptized believers who have gathered together in local churches. And again, I'll say more about baptism next week. But baptism and the Lord's Supper serve together as signs that give both identity to and definition of a local church. So if baptism is where we receive, if you like, the family name, the Lord's Supper is where we sit down for the family meal. Participating in both is the way that disciples like us publicly identify with Jesus and with one another, his family. And that's what the church in Corinth was taught. Communion practice in the church in Corinth is what Paul is trying to straighten out in this letter. And he's trying to straighten it out because the body life, the relationships between the people that belong to the church in Corinth is completely mucked up. It's broken, it's fractured, it's splintered, it is bad. Now, regarding communion, Paul says in verse 27, I've already taught you about this subject of communion. When he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed, past tense, passed on to you. He's referring to a previous occasion, more than likely the occasion when he, having planted the church, was establishing it, which is what we read about in the book of Acts, regularly how he regularly went around strengthening the churches that he had planted and establishing them by doing things like telling them what they should practice, what they should believe, establishing doctrine, telling them to establish elderships, diaconate, all that kind of stuff. So this is the whole idea of teaching communion is church basics kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff you'd learn in a membership class when you're joining a church. And this is who this meal is for. And the assembly of the church is the occasion for celebrating it, the gathering. And once more, this is Christ's instruction. This is Christ's intention for this meal. When you look at verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11 with me, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He means that he has been personally instructed by Jesus on this. So this is what Jesus ordains for us. And he, he says as much in Galatians that he's been personally taught by the Lord. That's what makes him an apostle. And what instructions did Jesus pass on to him for his churches? The exact same thing taught, he taught the disciples in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. That which he did with them that night, taking bread and wine, uh, Paul should do with them and to teach and establish in every church that is planted, whether by Paul or by somebody else who preaches the gospel and sees souls saved. So what does that tell us? It tells us that this is a meal for the church. Now, let me state the obvious. That means it's not a meal for those who are unbelievers. Though unbelievers are very, very welcome in all of our gatherings, where even when the Lord's Supper is celebrated, it's not, communion isn't a secret practice of a church that's to be done behind closed doors like it's some kind of secret thing. We'll read shortly. It's a public proclamation of the gospel that we have all come to believe well, how can it be a public proclamation if we do it all behind closed doors? 
No, the, it, it is expected and anticipated, whether through children or through guests, that there will be unbelievers present. And it's for those who believe, but, but communion is for those who believe that Christ died for us once for all to bring us to God. It's for those who trust that by his death and resurrection, we who are sorry for our sins and believe in him are truly saved. And my question for you this morning is, are you? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you set your hope in him for a right standing with him? For forgiveness of sins? Do you recognize what we sang in our first song? That he's the creator of all things and all things shout to you. He, he exists. This world is not a random collocation of atoms as some people would have you believe. It's not just a chance bunch of millions of chain reactions over time. There's divine intentionality. The artwork of the mountains, the sky, and everything you see has a signature, and it's the Lord's. So believe in him. Come to him. Ask us to explain more about this gospel, this good news, or this cross, or these elements. What do the bread and the cup symbolize? Why does it matter for me? Well, communion is a family meal for baptized believers who've gathered together in local churches. But Paul also says something else in here when he explains that this is something for his church to do. He says, communion's a family meal for baptized believers to discern the body. You see that from chapter 10 as well as mentioned in chapter 11. In other words, to eat or drink in a way that's mindful, not just of our obedience to Christ, but our commitment to each other as well. It involves a renewal of our commitment to each other as well as to Christ. And then, so that's why we should make sure that we do it right. And you would expect that to be the case based on what we looked at last week. If being a part of a body means that we, by being members of it, honor our heads, that is Christ, and one another in membership of it, then you would expect this to be at least evident in some way in communion, in the way that the ordinances are practiced. Well, you do. But it is entirely possible, friends, to eat and drink this meal in a way that dishonors the body, without discerning the body, without thinking much of each other. You know, communion can, for some of us, just be a time when we close our eyes, bow our heads, hunch our shoulders, try really hard not to be distracted by the seven-year-old behind us who's just like, why can I not have a snack? And we just think it's all about us as individuals. And it's not. It's not at all. But that's what the church in Corinth was doing, and that's what the church in Corinth was reprimanded for. In verses 18 to 22, Paul, who's been so gracious throughout this letter, heaping praise on this church family when really they're misbehaving pretty badly. He says in verse 22, shall I praise you in this matter of the Lord's Supper? Certainly not in this matter. They weren't waiting for the church family to gather. That was the issue. Some were just cracking on with their own little private communion in groups. And Paul says, church, you better watch out because by eating the bread and drinking the cup in a way that's unworthy, you may well find yourself under God's discipline. 
That's what's in that text. Divine judgment, like the kind described in verses 29 to 32, communicates what God thinks about not following through on the clear instructions that Jesus has left us. Because eating and drinking in an unworthy manner makes you guilty of sinning, verse 27, against the body and blood of the Lord, which I take to mean Christ, and verse 29, against the body of Christ, which I take to mean his church. So, the encouragement for us as we learn that Christ left this for his church is to realize that we should eat and drink regularly, often, as often as it's celebrated, to gather for it, but to make sure that we're prepared for it to eat and drink in a worthy manner. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be perfect in order to come and take the Lord's Supper. No, it's for people who are sinful. Sinners saved by grace. That's who it's for. But we must come with a due appreciation for the seriousness of following Christ's instructions and with a due awareness of each other, the family that we are in Him, so that we don't experience the kind of discipline that's here in 1 Corinthians 11. And I hope this goes without saying, but let me say it. Communion is not a meal for individuals or subdivisions of the church. Communion is not a solo spiritual experience between a single believer and Jesus. Whether you're in a service, on your own, or at home watching the live stream, communion really isn't something you can share on your own or even remotely. I didn't during lockdown, not once. I just could not bring myself to do it. It went completely against my conscience. I couldn't. It hurt not being able to remember the Lord together with all of us gathered together. I would rather, on those occasions, suffer the pain and the disappointment and the heartache of not being able to gather with you to remember Christ together than take it together in some rush in my living room where none of you were. I don't think that's the way it's meant to be. I think gathering is necessary. Now, don't, I'm not laying down a law here that says, oh, so we never take bread and wine to the housebound or to the dying. No, I'm not saying that. Not in the slightest, actually. But what I am saying is that the Lord's Supper ought to be so important to us that on the occasions that we celebrate it, this body of Christ, and by, by that I mean every single one of us, we kick into gear and we make sure that everybody who is able to get into our car and to come, we bring them. We load our cars. Even if it means you come and you've not had a chance to straighten your hair or have that extra coffee or whatever, we fill our cars, we bring them so we can be what Christ has called us to be and to do what Christ has commissioned his church to do. Leave early, load them up, your cars that is, and let no one miss out. But it's not a solo experience, nor is it really for smaller groups within a church to celebrate. When you boil it down, that actually was the very problem that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. It was improper in lots of ways. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Verse 20, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. When he calls it private suppers there, by the way, he, he actually won't bring himself to call what they're doing in this kind of smaller subdivision of the, even their gatherings, the Lord's Supper. He can't bring himself to call it that. Private suppers is what he calls it. 
So we can drink, eat and drink in an unworthy manner if we celebrate communion outside of a local church gathering, which means you shouldn't celebrate it in a Christian union, in our view, my view. According to what I'm read here, I'm happy to be proved otherwise. It's for the church. And we've defined in weeks one and two of this series exactly what we mean by that. So communion is a symbolic meal of bread and wine ordained by Jesus for his church, churches like us. For what purpose? Well, here's the very important bit. To remember him, the Lord Jesus himself. We are to share in the Lord's Supper to remember him. We are to follow his instructions regarding this very simple yet glorious meal because it is a key way that we remember him and especially his death. As verse 24 and 25 say of the bread and the cup respectively, do this in remembrance of me. Another reason why we treat it as a memorial meal and nothing more. The bread and the cup take us back, you see. Even as we take them now, this, this little piece of bread, slightly hard, this, this juice, this fruit of the vine, a little too tangy. But these simple elements filled with meaning and significance take us beyond what we hold in our hands to a cross in the past and to Christ himself. To gaze on him through faith and to receive from him by faith the assurance of those words uttered at our Lord's Supper celebrations every single time, this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. Remember me. Take these because this is for you. And what does it renew in us? as we in faith renew our commitment to Christ in it. What does it renew in us? Love, joy, gratitude, awe, and deeply so in every case. To a people prone to forget, prone to distraction, prone to doubt, he gives us something physical, something edible, truth we can touch in a piece of bread, truth we can taste in a tiny cup, items that are tangible reminders to us of eternal and glorious truths like Christ died for our sins once for all to bring us to God. Or Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Take it, eat it, take it, drink it. Remember his body broken for you. The cleansing you have because of his blood and the eternal life that's yours through the sacrifice of the son.
uh, the Lord in his kindness has given us physical foods like bread and wine to nourish us spiritually. Isn't it kind of him? To remind us again and again, our mouth takes it in, but our souls are fed in faith. We take in afresh all that Christ obtained for us by his death and resurrection and find our faith renewed. But we not only share in bread and wine to remember him, we share in the Lord's Supper, of course, to proclaim him. To proclaim him. Now, this bread and this cup are like, they're like a physical sermon to one another. When we eat and drink together, we preach the cross. We announce in the very act of communion the gospel. We declare through the words of institution, explaining what the symbols represent, that he physically died. We proclaim him to each other. When we eat together, when we say, this is for us, he said so. And when we do it, it is like we are re-preaching the cross to each other. We're saying to those of us in doubt, and there are those of us in doubt who sit in here, we're saying this is really true. And we all believe it together. To those with crippling guilt and shame over sins committed, we say, Christ died for our sins. This is really true. And we're all united in this fact. It's when we're strengthening each other's faith. And this is one of my favorite aspects of Lord's Supper, if that's actually allowed. It's such a gift to my faith, and I hope it is to yours, that when we, we not only recall that we have been personally redeemed by his blood, but to look around and see people and recall their testimonies during the taking of the bread and wine is very, very special. It strengthens my faith to see you who are going through trials the kind of trials that, make, that might make an ordinary man or woman throw the towel in, feeding in faith, feeds mine. Or to see one another taking bread happily in faith. <laughs> I remember their testimony at their baptism. I remember what they once were. And now I know through the taking of this bread and wine what they are now. And it feeds my heart and faith. I really hope it feeds yours. So maybe instead of the bowing the head, the closing the eyes, the hunching the shoulders, we actually have a good look around. And we call to mind our stories. And every single one being a trophy of grace. Because you did not deserve to eat and drink of this bread and this cup. And neither did I. Goodness me, I definitely didn't. None of us did. But that's what makes the taking of it together so special, friends. And by taking it together, we proclaim him, Christ, to one another in ways that feeds our faith. And of course, as I've said, the bread and the wine are like physical sermon to the unbeliever present. Just as baptism offers that visual reminder of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, so bread and wine offer a visual reminder of his death. It's incredible, really quite incredible to consider what he just said. Like Christ is preached through these. His death is proclaimed through these simple little things. Yet how unbelievably precious to our souls. And how much does that say to those of you who are not yet trusting in Christ for a right standing with God. 
What, do you, what does it say to you about what every single one of these people in this room who take this in a few moments are banking on for a right standing with God? They're good works? Are they do-gooders? No, no one can get right with God by trying to get into his good books. Only through faith in Jesus. These preach to you a sign not only of Christ's body and blood shed for sinners, but we eating as sinners totally dependent on him. That's what it means. But only for a time. Because there is a time limit on this meal as the message it, uh, and the message it proclaims because one day it will cease. Christ will come again and with him our eternal reward just as he promised making this supper not only a meal that makes us look back to the cross or look around at his reward, the church, but look forward in faith to the new heaven and the new earth where we will feast eternally with something a bit more than a bit of bread and certainly much less tangy than a tiny cup of wine. And if you don't know Christ, ask for forgiveness today while there is time. I remember the day when I led communion once in, a, in the church I pastored previously in St. Andrews. We had gathered for uh, the preaching of the word and to celebrate communion that morning. And I still remember Denise sitting there with her husband, Steve. Steve believed the gospel. Uh, Denise didn't. Uh, he took bread and wine that day uh, together with pretty much everybody else who was gathered, but she didn't. And she said later, as she spoke to Steve that day, that it really struck her quite significantly. As he ate and drank, remembering and proclaiming that she wasn't right with God. She didn't have the joy that everyone else in that room knew, the joy of having sins forgiven and new life in Christ. So she went home that day and after lunch, talked to her husband, Steve, and he led her to Christ. Six weeks later, we baptized her. And that following Sunday, she took the Lord's Supper for herself as a part of the body, discerning the body, preaching and proclaiming Christ herself. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, I pray you'd do the same. So why take communion? Because it's a symbolic meal of bread and wine ordained by Jesus for his church to remember and proclaim his death until he comes. It is a means by which we renew our commitment to Christ. It is a means by which we renew our commitment to one another in this local body. These are the Lord's instructions. They communicate what's important to him and vital to us. And our job is dead simple. Do this until he comes back. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this gospel. Thank you so much for the time to give to considering 
the truth that your son taught, the things that he drove home for us, his church, and impressed upon us to do, for what these simple items mean in relation to his instruction and indeed his person as we come to remember him by taking these elements together we pray you would fill us with a deep sense of awe and gratitude and solemnity and joy in Jesus name we ask it amen Let's stand together and sing, Behold the Lamb.